Welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly and it will play music that is unique to you. Your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Okay, so welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This is episode 11. We've passed that uh, 10 episode mark and, you know, we're, we're growing. It's, it's been almost two months now and um, we got notification last time that we were top 200 in the uh, medicine podcasts. I, I think that means that there's 200 medicine podcasts, but actually, you know, I've been really surprised at how quickly and rapidly this podcast is going. And and I'd made a commitment earlier that this season was going to be about back pain before we branched off into other types of pain. And there's still a couple a couple things that I want to go over. And today we're going to go over uh, spinal stenosis. Now, realize this is not going to be a comprehensive uh, understanding or study of, of spinal stenosis. Although, I I will say that I think that it's still one of those cases where I want to change the way spinal stenosis is treated. And as I discuss the way that I think spinal stenosis occurs, I'll also discuss some of the treatments of spinal stenosis. Now, for those of you that have listened to every podcast and and for those of you that have, I, um, I can't tell you how grateful I am. I, I really feel like uh, you will be the the ground source from where you know, all of this began. You're the you're the the pioneers that are seeing this through with me. And I just keep getting, you know, really nice comments back from people and and it spurs me on uh to continue to try to do this. And we'll talk about this a little bit later as part of this podcast is going to be something else. But just realize that I'm trying to change everything. I really want to change the way the the spine is looked at and treated, and spinal stenosis is is one of those things that I want to change. So people who have listened to all of these are going to say, wait a minute, he's already said that. I have to go back and explain things again, because this might be the only podcast that that, uh, someone has listened to. So in the lumbar spine, really what what occurs is, is that the spine has to be stable. If you sit up straight and you say, I'm not going to move my shoulders, I'm not going to move my pelvis, I'm merely going to move my low back without moving my shoulder or pelvis, good luck. The muscles in the low back don't move you, they hold you steady, right? Uh, one of the ways we know this is because if you look at any other joint in the body that is supposed to move, it has several ways that it deals with heat, right? So I, I bend a coat hanger, it heats up. I unscrew a bolt, it heats up. I move my knee, I got lubrication that keeps that knee from uh, having a significant increase in, in uh, heat, okay? But some heat will be generated. So I've got a little bit of blood flow through there. In the spine, the discs have no blood flow. At least by age 35, they have no blood flow. Before that, they have crappy blood flow. They have no lubrication. The discs are not made 
to gen to to work like a joint. They're not made to increase the heat of motion and then dissipate it. Basically, what they're meant for is they're meant to be stable. They're meant to hold your back in a stable position. Now, the muscles around the spine, you know, we've got we've got multifidus, which is right down the straight down the back of the spine. We've got transverse abdominis, which is a muscle in the front of the pelvis and a, and a, a group of muscles called spinae erecta muscles on the back of the pelvis that both hold the pelvis like two ropes on a window washer's platform. The multifidus that I mentioned earlier holds the spine in a neutral position. And what happens is that each of these muscles are a lot like the arch of your foot. They allow lengthening like a spring, and then they spring back into place, right? It's the arch of your foot is not a contractile muscle like most of the muscles in your body. It is a spring. And a lot of what I have described as the, as the bracing muscles are spring muscles. They, they are muscles that allow lengthening, but their tone is high enough that they sit in a contracted state most of the time. And then other parts of your body, when they try to take over, when we compensate, when we get weakness in these areas that are supposed to have high tone spring-like effects, when they get weak, our, we have other muscles that are normally contractile muscles that are forced to have increased tone. So really what you're left with is you're left with saying, how do I keep that spine stable in the face of aging or injury or, or whatnot? So the first group of muscles we have are the three that I mentioned, the multifidus, the transverse abdominis, and the, and the group of muscles called spinae erecta muscles. The next thing we'll do is we'll have dynamic stabilization, which is muscles that stabilize us while we move. Uh, your sit-up muscles, which is rectus abdominis, oblique muscles, um, uh, glute, gluteus ties into that, quad and hamstring in the, in the thigh, both couple and create um improvement in stability through the glute, right? The glute actually fi fires with the psoas, which we'll get to, but there's tons of dynamic stabilizer muscles that are supposed to stabilize the spine. And then lastly, we have these super stabilizers, which is really the iliopsoas, because the iliacus goes up to the top, up to the, the very brim of the pelvis, and then the quadratus lumborum takes over after that. And then the psoas, which is um, you know, the front part of the spine, and then diaphragm and pelvic floor. So diaphragm, pelvic floor, iliopsoas, quadratus lumborum. Those muscles clamp us down when we breath hold and create super stability. Okay. So what happens with spinal stenosis? Okay, so spinal stenosis is a narrowing of the canal that the spinal cord goes through. And I will include some pictures so that you know, people can see this on the, on the um, show notes. But spinal stenosis is a narrowing of the canal. Now, it also could be a narrowing of what's called the neuroforamen. The neuroforamen is where the nerve comes out. So the spinal canal goes, goes down through what's called the neural arch behind the vertebrae and behind the disc. And this neural arch creates a canal. The spinal cord runs down through. And at each level, a nerve is given off right? So each vertebrae, remember we stacked up the vertebrae one on top of the other. There's, seat, there's seven cervical vertebrae, there's 12 thoracic vertebrae, there's five or six lumbar vertebrae. And then there's even three. So we talked about the fused number of vertebrae in the, in the sacrum and, and coccyx. Well, there's three or four, possibly even five nerves that come down through the sacrum. In each of those cases, the nerve comes out the side. So the nerve will come out the side, and through that side, there can be narrowing. And there are very specific symptoms that we see with spinal stenosis. 
So what happens with spinal stenosis is, is, and it's really neurogenic claudication is what they call it because uh, physicians, we like to use big words to, to intimidate those around us. Um, and then when we really want to intimidate you, we'll turn it into a, uh, what's that called when you, when you change things into letters? Uh, there's no, I have no other guest to run things past. So, so we would call it, uh, NC, neurogenic claudication. That's when we really want to intimidate the, uh, the non-knowing or the, uh, un, the people who have not gone through, uh, medical training. So, uh, neurogenic claudication basically means that I start getting is issues with my legs as I do stuff, right? The, the canal is narrowed or the foramen is narrowed. And then I start to do stuff and that area gets irritated or swollen and then I start getting symptoms. So what people will say is they'll say, I start to walk and my legs start to go numb. And then I sit and I rest for a while and the numbness improves. The other thing is, is that I can find positions where if I get in this position, it won't, it won't bother me as bad. And, you know, people will sit, and as they sit, they kind of rock their shoulders forward, and it creates a little more space in that neurocanal or the neuroforamen, and, and their symptoms improve. Or they get in what's called a jockey position, right? So jockey position is, imagine a jockey on the horse, and his legs are up, and, his, and he's bent forward with his hands on the bridle, and, and completely, almost in a fetal position, but sitting. They create more space in their canal. This is the symptoms that we see, and you'll, you'll hear it all the time where people are trying to push treatments for spinal stenosis, and they'll start expanding the symptoms that we see with spinal stenosis, and I'm sure that in some cases they're correct. However, back pain's complicated, as I've already told you. I mean, this is a very complicated set of symptoms that overlap one on the other, and I will tell you at this point that if you don't walk and your legs go numb and then you sit and it gets better— and you don't find positions where your where your spine is kind of arched forward and your symptoms improve, I would look for other things before I'd start calling this spinal stenosis. Now, why is that important? Because we can find spinal stenosis in almost any MRI. Almost. I mean, not every MRI. There was a study done where they looked at spines of people over the age of 60 96% had either a disc bulge or spinal stenosis. 96%. So if all we're doing is looking at the MRI and seeing spinal stenosis, and we say, oh, you have spinal stenosis, well, that's a, that's a diagnosis. It's not an MRI finding. So just realize that spinal stenosis can be, can be diagnosed all the time, and that isn't your diagnosis. Right? So you really have to go back and look at those symptoms and say, and say, what, what are we looking at? Now, I will tell you, I've been surprised with spinal stenosis. And, and I had a veterinary, a horse, an equine veterinarian doctor in here who was having some pretty, pretty weird symptoms. And, and she said that in horses, when they start having weird symptoms, and now they haven't had any horses, uh, contrary to 1960 TV, they have not had any horses that can give them, you know, symptoms, tell them what their symptoms are. So they'll have horses with pretty unusual symptoms. And one of the things that she said they think about is they think about cervical, which is neck, cervical spinal stenosis. And in her case, she was having some pretty weird symptoms. And we did an MRI of her neck and she had cervical spinal stenosis and we treated it and she got better. So realize 
that not every spinal stenosis is exactly as I just said. However, I think the worst thing you can do, especially in somebody who's in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, et cetera, is get an MRI not knowing what you're looking for, see spinal stenosis, and then say, this is your diagnosis. It's kind of like degenerative disc disease. Discs degenerate because you're not stable. You're not able to control the heat that we talked about earlier. And because you can't control the heat, your disc starts to break down. Well, that's what spinal stenosis is too, which I'll explain here in a second. So what happens is, is that you are given a diagnosis of spinal stenosis, and then you start getting either epidurals, or if you listen to uh, the insurance companies, they say epidurals don't work uh, for spinal stenosis. So you're, you're regulated to surgery for spinal stenosis. When you're not even sure it's spinal stenosis, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. So... I think what needs to happen is is that people need to understand this is spinal, you know, this is what we see with spinal stenosis and this isn't what we see with spinal stenosis. So first thing is, is we need to know what the symptoms are, but we also need to know what the symptoms of facet pain is and what SI pain is and, and all of these other musculoskeletal things. And, and to just jump in and say, we saw spinal stenosis on your spine. I know it doesn't fit with your symptoms, but we're going to treat that first is a disaster. Okay. So how do we get spinal stenosis? Well, initially, we're trying to create stability around the spine. And, and for those of you who remember, I did remember I discussed the stability in um, children, right? So if I take a 10-year-old and I have them run through an agility ladder, uh, they're going to look as uncoordinated as every other 10-year-old. Then what happens is that as they start trying to get more active, they are forced to get more stable. And it works this way as we get older. We, we start building up muscles of stability as we do stuff. It doesn't work in reverse, right? A person doesn't naturally build up muscles of stability once they already have learned patterns of motion. But a child will develop increasing stability just going through their monkey bar routine or you know, doing what they do, playing different different games and things like that. They Because they don't have any learned patterns of motion, they are forced to learn stability first, and then from their stability, they can get improved coordination. So between the ages of 10 and, let's say, 17, we start getting significant improved coordination. Then let's assume we get injured, and we, and we, lose, this, we lose this stability, right? Because injury leads to a lack of stability as we compensate and, and etc. So we lose this stability and what we should become is uncoordinated, but we don't. We maintain our coordination even in the face of this lack of stability because now we already have a learned pattern of motion. If I were to give a basketball player who hadn't played basketball in five years a, ba- a basketball and say, I need to see you do a layup, the first couple may look terrible, but by the third one, their layup looks perfect. How many years did it take them to get that perfect layup? Years. They take all these years off and let's assume they're injured. They go and try to do a layup and they, the, the pattern of motion comes back to them quickly. Okay, so we have these patterns of motion that, that belie our stability. Well, how can we do that? How can we, how can we have this pattern of motion that doesn't fit with the stability that we have. Well, compensation. 
we start to first tighten muscles, as I mentioned earlier. So we've got muscles that are always tight, spring-like muscles that allow motion. Well, we have other muscles that will take over when those get weak. So, for example, in the back, the hamstring oftentimes tightens up. The psoas muscle tightens up, right? These are, these are muscles that can stabilize us. We can start breath holding more, and we can create stability around our spine, all of which decreases the, the, the stabilizing muscles, the bracing muscles that we are supposed to be using. But we achieve stability. The next thing is, is that our fascia can tighten up. Our fascia will get tight trying to hold us steady in the face of this of these normal patterns of motion. The next is, is that the joint capsules will tighten. And then somewhere in there, we start breath holding more, which I already kind of mentioned. It gets a little, gets a little fo foggy. But then the last is that our body will start to build arthritis. Start to build arthritis. Yes, there are some types of arthritis that are um, inflammation, excuse me, that are, um, yeah, that are inflammation or autoimmune based or, or, or whatever. But in a lot of cases, an injury can lead to instability and then the body builds bone trying to stabilize that joint. Okay. So how's this happen in the spine? Well, if the spine is not stable, there's a, there's a, a ligament in the back of the, of the spinal canal called a, um, ligamentum flavum. And I often talk, I often call it a posterior ligament, uh, but it's called the ligamentum flavum. And I, and I probably call it the posterior ligament because all I can think of is Flava Flav, which was a, a rap singer. And I hate to date myself, but I think the, I think the nineties, big clock on his, on his chest and, and uh, a grill on his teeth, you know, um, for those of you who remember, yeah. If you don't remember, just we'll just go on from here. <laughs> but Flava Flav. So posterior, or, excuse me, ligamentum flavum right? Posterior ligament. This ligament will swell. Now we talked about this a little bit in one of the other podcasts and, and I can include the uh, MRI again, and I will point out the ligamentum flavum. I will also point out the neuroforamen on, on this picture. Okay. So ligamentum flavum starts to swell. As it swells, we've got less room in there, less room in the joint, right? What if it is already narrowed because we've got a little bit of arthritis in the facet. Well, if we've got a little bit of arthritis in the facet, then there's less room already. If we've got a little bit of a disc bulge because the disc is breaking down because it's not that stable, then we've, we've got a little bit of narrowing even then, right? So we've got arthritis, possibly a cyst on the facet joint, which can sometimes narrow the canal. We've got ligamentum flavum thickening, and then we've got a, a very small, what we call broad-based disc bulge. Okay. All of these can cause narrowing. Let's talk briefly about the neuroforamen. And this is a really important co uh, concept because physicians will see the report from the, from the neurologist or from the radiologist that'll talk about neuroforaminal narrowing. And sometimes they get they get confused, and it's it's really the way that it's stated on the MRI. Okay, neuroforaminal narrowing will come as mild, moderate, and severe. Mild and moderate, in the mind of the neurologist, or for, excuse me, of the radiologist, is insignificant. You hear me? Mild or moderate neuroforaminal stenosis, as it's called in the radiology worlds is considered insignificant because it doesn't have, it's not supposed to have a practical 
um, patient-centered result. You're just noting it. It's really only severe spinal or neuroforaminal stenosis that is considered one of those where the nerve is being impinged. So people will be sent to me all the time with neuroforaminal stenosis, and I'll look at it and I'll say, mild. Mild neuroforaminal stenosis? Well, they just, you know, they don't know that the radiologist is saying, yeah, it's there, but it's not significant. The only time they're going to note that it's significant is when it's severe. So for those of you who are reading only the report and you see mild to moderate neuroforaminal stenosis, the chances of that actually being the cause of your pain is pretty low. Okay? So that's neuroforaminal stenosis. Next, for, uh, stenosis in the, in the back, really what I'm looking for is I'm looking to see if there is uh, quite a bit of arthritis or quite a bit of disc bulge. Because if all there is is quite a bit of ligamentum flavum thickening, then I'm treating that person. I'm treating them anyway, right? I'm going to see if I can get them better anyway. Because if I can get them better with, with uh, a steroid injection and they're better for two to three months, then I work like crazy at trying to get them stable again and see if we can't keep them there, right? Okay, so back up just slightly. If I put a steroid shot into the, into the epidural space of somebody who has a very swollen ligamentum flavum or posterior ligament, I expect that ligament to shrink just like I would any other, any swollen ligament. That ligament is swollen because I'm not, because the patient's not stable. They're not holding their back stable the way they should be. So then what happens is that I say, I'm going to put a steroid in there and I'm going to decrease the swelling of their ligamentum flavum. And it may take two. And if I can do it, I'm going to work with physical therapy, trying to recreate stability so that that ligament doesn't swell again. And I can tell you, it works all the time. So what has the studies shown? The studies show that steroid doesn't work, that the epidural steroid injection does not work for uh, spinal stenosis. Why? Because they don't try to recreate the stability that I'm trying to recreate. If all you do is give them a steroid shot, an epidural steroid shot, and it decreases the ligamentum flavum and it lasts for two months, your, your result would be it only lasts for two months. They needed surgery eventually anyway. On the other hand, if I can decrease that and then increase strength and then that ligament doesn't swell back up, well, hallelujah. Sometimes, though, there's just too much arthritis, and I can't get rid of arthritis with a, with a steroid shot. Sometimes there's too much of a disc bulge or, you know, it's other causes besides ligamentum flavum that's causing narrowing. But in most cases, I can at least look at it and say, let's give it a try, and let's see if we can get some inflammation, and then let's try to do the strengthening. And you'd be surprised at how often it works. Now, I will tell you, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of spinal surgery for spinal stenosis because I think it uh, creates a permanent change, but sometimes that's what's necessary. Sometimes there's just too much arthritis or, or, or too much narrowing through that area, and we're never going to be able to get enough inflammation or enough strengthening as long as they have that. And then what they need is surgery. And then after the surgery, they got to do a, a ton of a ton of strengthening, or at least it gives them an opportunity to. Uh, but a lot of times, I think that when a person has surgery, really what we're looking at is we're saying, we don't think you're ever going to be able to do the strengthening. Um, it could be the reverse of that, which is you, you, there's no way you're going to be able to do the strengthening with what you got right now. So uh, we're going to do the surgery so that you can do it. 
There's a couple other procedures that I do. I do uh, a Vertiflex and a Minuteman procedures. They're two different procedures, both of which accomplish the same thing. The spinous process, which is behind the canal, uh, is uh, pushed apart. And as it's pushed apart, it creates more room in that canal, um, both of which are reasonably reversible if, if need be. Um, I think that there's a, I think that there's some people that are doing them uh, based on an algorithm and they're never really going through the uh, decision making process. They're just saying, hey, you know, this is something we can try because it looks like you have spinal stenosis on your MRI, which, you know, we've kind of already discussed. I don't think that's the greatest way to discuss or to diagnose um, spinal stenosis without going through um, a pretty thorough uh, discernment of what truly is is causing their pain rather than just looking at the MRI. Uh, there's a procedure called a mild procedure where what they do is they go in and they cut away that posterior ligament or that ligamentum flavum. And I've always felt like a person needs that ligamentum flavum. I'm not sure why cutting it away is such a great idea. Um, again, it's just like surgery. I can see why you can say, well, you know, we're getting nowhere, but uh, sometimes people just look at the MRI and go, oh, look, you've got a big, big posterior ligament and a history of, or at least a diagnosis of spinal stenosis. We're going to cut away that ligament. Well, if you don't even follow up with strengthening after that, then you're, you're accelerating the arthritis that the person's going to get. Um, if you say, yeah, I do mild procedure, I cut away the ligament and flavum, and then I work like crazy on lumbar stability, I could get your point. But if all you're doing is cutting away the ligamentum flavum without understanding that that ligament is trying to do a job that the muscles in your body is not doing, well, I don't think it's that great of a procedure. So I think it's important that people kind of understand that spinal stenosis is based on the fact that your spine is not stable. I feel like I made that, I feel like I made that point in a very roundabout way, but that is not how people look at spinal stenosis right now. And they really need to. So I need comments back for this. This is my, uh, this is the end of the, of the spinal stenosis comment. And that's what it is today is it is a comment. And I really, and I want to hear other people's comment back. And, and I think that all of us could get more information if we have more comment back. The next part of this podcast is for those of you who have continued to listen. I feel like there is a, and this is a lot for practitioners, I feel like medicine has changed in the last six months. And I've said this before, I feel like insurances are, are denying more and more. And there is an insurance company that made record profits by denying everything they could in the first quarter of, of 2021. With that, we, with the increased corporatization of medicine, we have companies that are unwilling to write things off. So clinics and hospitals where uh, what would happen before is that insurance companies would deny things. They, they would deny a procedure and, or a portion of a procedure. And then the physician would do it anyway because the, because the insurance can't practice medicine without a license. They can only tell you what they're going to pay for. And then the hospital or clinic would write it off. And those days are kind of at its end, right? We've got too many big corporations that are supposed to make profits every quarter, quarter upon quarter. And what's happened is, is that you have um, clinics and hospitals that are unwilling to write things off. So what they do is they say, yes, doctor, insurance paid for this, but we're getting paid for everything. Therefore, we're going to bill the patient, uh, possibly send them to, to collections for the last little bit that we didn't get paid for. Okay. 
Now, this used to be fine. I mean, if it happened, if this had happened 20 years ago, it would have been fine. We, we as physicians would write in our notes very ineligibly, if I can say that without being a five-syllable five word, ineligibly, and nobody would know that we'd done it. Well, now everything is typed out. They know exactly what we've done. And, and my Hippocratic oath says that I should treat the patient and my, my, my uh, paperwork is supposed to suggest that I'm following the rules of the insurance or else my company is going to charge the patient. You see where we're getting here? So what's happened is, is that when insurance denies things, I either cause economic ruin or at least economic trouble for my patient or I do what the insurance says. And then when Medicare got involved and Medicare started saying, listen, you can't do facet injections unless the person has no signs of radiculopathy. I'm sorry, but there's no research that says that, right? I just had a call from another insurance company and they said, in the, in the neck, for example, when a person gets facet pain, one facet causes pain to all the facets because they, they, turn, they move like, the, like, the, train, like the, the cars on a train, Every one that moves affects the one next to it. So for example, I'll treat four facets in the neck at a time. Well, they've come back and said, some insurances say three and the other one says four. So I call and I talk to this, uh, we do what's called a peer-to-peer for those who don't know. I call and I talk to this physician. So it was a physician that I had to talk to because we were supposed to figure it out together. And I said to her, I said, how can you possibly say that this person only has three facets when you didn't do an exam? The person has four facets that hurt. And she says, yeah, but the insurance company only allows us to approve three. And I say, well, if I do three and then the person comes back and says they need a fourth and then I go back and do the fourth and they get an infection or a bruise or some other, some other terrible complication, that's on the insurance company. That, because the insurance company made a decision that I'm unwilling to have the patient suddenly get a $1,000 bill because there was one more facet that we needed to do. And, and if I put it on there, they were going to have to pay. But the insurance will pay for it if I, if I say, no, no, I'm going to break this up into two procedures. But it's their medical decision. And she says, yeah, I hear this all the time. I was really hoping she'd say, I agree with you. But it, they're on a recorded line and they're not willing to say that. So what she said is, I hear this all the time. And I go, I go, so what we're doing here is a peer-to-peer where you and I are supposed to decide together on the, on, with our medical training the, the, what the insurance should do. And she goes, nope. She goes, it's a hard and fast rule. The insurance will not approve more than three levels. At which point I said, I think they're practicing medicine without a license. And she said, yeah, I hear that all the time. And I went, oh my gosh, we we got to do something about this. I didn't say that to her. I'm saying it to you guys. And, and what I keep thinking is, is that the insurance companies and the Medicare people who were listening stopped listening when we got done with the, with the spinal stenosis part. So, so let's just keep this between us. So here's what I propose. I have already contacted the state to make an inquiry on whether things have changed enough that Insurance is practicing medicine without a license. I have contacted a Medicare lawyer, right? I'm not doing this out of spite. I'm doing this because I think that the, the people of the United States that are being treated should have the physician making the decision rather than the insurance companies who just had a huge profit. And what they'll say is they'll say, we're not making medical decisions. We're just telling you what, we pay, what we'll pay for. 
At least that's what they've said for years. It's different now. They are making medical decisions. We're past the point where they're saying we just won't pay for things. It's well past that. We, they are making medical decisions. And for those of you that would say, well, Dr. Wheeler, you're, you're trying to get insurances to pay for everything. No, I'm not. Right? I want insurances, I want insurance companies to save us. What I want insurance to do is to turn around and go, well, now that we're being forced to pay for whatever the physician asks for, we're only going to choose the best physicians to cover. The people who have great outcomes are going to be the ones that we cover. Because they they can't they can't just go out and say, okay, guys, do whatever you want. There's too many pain physicians doing everything they can to make as much money as they can regardless of outcome, which is one of the reasons why we're in this condition. I mean, it, it's, yes, it's insurance companies and, and yes, it's the fact that, you know, corporations are, are, are trying to make uh, as much money as they can, but so are the physicians. An outcome is out the door. And until insurance companies start demanding outcome to be the important determining factor here, we're going to be continually be in this problem. Capitalism pointed in the right direction has created some of the greatest good that has ever occurred in, in the United States. Point capitalism in the right direction. Start covering the physicians who are having good outcomes. Start telling corporations and, and everybody else involved with medicine is, is that we're going, to, we're going to cover the people that are having great outcomes, and then you'll start seeing inc- improved outcomes. That's all I want. I'm sure that if I bring this up, and as I'm bringing it up now, I probably should keep it to myself, I should do this in silence so that there's no backlash. But my job is, my vocation is to get people better. That's, that's when I wake up in the morning, when I don't want burnout, when I want, when I want to feel like what I'm doing means something, it's, it's my patience. If I was a pastor, that'd be my flock. These are the people that I have to take care of. And I see this and I say, okay, I want to do what's right for you. But if I do, you're going to have this huge bill. This is all a problem. This is all a problem that the insurance could could fix. And it doesn't feel like the regular ways is going to get there. So what I'm asking, this was a long ask, is for those of you who agree with me, and I know that there's, we have almost every state in the United States um, that that someone listens to this podcast. It's like I told you, we're in the top 200. (laughs) We have almost every state covered. Inquire. Inquire into your your board of healing arts. And then the other thing is, is that if you have a specific case where they denied you, inquire into the the, uh, insurance commissioner at your state and give them a specific case. And do it anonymously, right? I don't want anyone getting any backlash. And here's the other thing is, is don't record anything, right? Um, giving your, stating your case simply without record, without recording anything is, is the way to go. I don't know if you guys remember that in, in the Clinton scandal, the only person who went to jail was Linda Tripp and she was the one who recorded, right? Because it was illegal. Don't record anything. Merely take the, uh, state the facts of the case and turn it into the insurance commissioner. But then also ask your state board to look into it because I'm not, I'm not trying to do anything wrong to the insurance company. I just want to – insurance companies. I want to force them to do what's right for patients. Okay. 
That's it for today. Thank you very much for listening to this whole thing. It was decidedly long. So uh, comments back, please. Um, Thank you, everyone who's been listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll get back into having guests next week. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also, visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.